Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. Flying, not just in America, but throughout the world, has never been safer. In spite of deregulation, the air traffic control system still in need of updates, pilot shortages, airport overcrowding, and even post-pandemic increase in volume of flights, safety is still holding. What's the secret sauce that makes the system work? Why, when safety in other industries, from hospitals to construction to automobiles, seems so difficult to achieve, how has the airline industry been so successful, and what can we all learn from their efforts? How has attitude, technology, public perception, and government policy all played a key role? We're going to talk about that today with my guest, John Nance. John has written about all of these issues in his nonfiction work and incorporated much of it into his prolific fiction. John Nance is an aviation analyst for ABC News. He's a familiar face on Good Morning America. And some of his best-selling novels include Firefight, Skyhook, Turbulence, and Orbit. Two of his novels, Pandora's Clock and Medusa's Child, have been made into highly successful television miniseries. He's a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Air Force Reserve. He is a decorated pilot veteran of Vietnam and Operation Desert Storm and Desert Shield. It is my pleasure to welcome John Nance here to the program. John, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on, Jeff. Appreciate it. Well, it's a delight to have you here. And thinking about aviation travel, and seems in some strange way there's an inverse proportion between how safe travel has become, air travel has become on the one hand, and how unpleasant it's become on the other hand. Talk a little bit. Yeah, it's an interesting correlation, and you're absolutely right. Uh, part of it is that the people who are running the airlines over time have learned how to maximize the ability to wring dollars out of all of us and to give us safe transportation, but without many amenities anymore. Uh, I started out my career flying for a company named Braniff International, and when we put on first class, I mean, it was sumptuous. They wined and dined you the whole way. Nowadays, you've got a big seat. That's about it. And there is a sense, and, and this is the irony of it, there is a sense that because because it is so chaotic, because it is so unpleasant, because it is it is processing so many people that it would be unsafe. But in fact, exactly the opposite is true. It, it, that's true. And what we have learned along the way in making it safe, uh, which is, as you say, kind of the opposite of what you would intuitively think with all the crowding and all the cacophony, uh, has actually foreign lessons that have been very useful and are being very useful in other industries, although not everybody's learning them fast enough. It has to do with human failure and human error. Back in uh, 79, we realized uh, that we had about 96% of the air accidents or the airline accidents around the world were caused by human error. Uh, you know, I, I sometimes pilot error, yes, but pilot error is, in my view, professional discretionary error. You know, you decide you want to fly under the Golden Gate Bridge just for the fun of it, and you clip the tail. That is a pilot error. <laughs> right. Some, somebody forgetting to put the gear down because you've got a cacophony of other problems going on, that's a human error. Talk a little bit about how it got to this safety point right now and, and really what came before, that it didn't just happen by accident. No, it didn't, although actually there's a kind of a pun there because uh, some of the accidents did force our nose into the reality that uh, that people were failing and, and systems were failing, and, and that was the cause of most of the uh, mishaps that we had, most of the tragedies. Once we began to look at that, Jeff, the, the big milestone here was when we all of a sudden realized as an industry in the early 80s 
that the only way to handle human failure was to expect it and to try to minimize it, of course, but then to build a system that could absorb the failures that we could not otherwise prevent. That was a, an amazing turning point. And as a matter of fact, in medicine and other industries, they're just now beginning to understand this. But it was a matter of, of having to say, you know, these airplanes very seldom fail. They've got so many backups, so many fail-safe systems, but the people that are failing or the things that are failing are the carbon-based unit component. That's an old Star Trek term, and I'm unabashedly a Star Trek fan. The carbon-based unit does kind of explain it to the extent of that's us, and we are incapable of being 100% perfect 100% of the time, even though that's what we train our doctors and nurses and airline pilots and everybody else to be. This blending of, of the human element and technology in a way that makes the best of both seems to be the unique sauce here that, that other industries and other places don't seem to be able to get. That's exactly right. Uh, it's it's because we have a Theory X society built up over time. Theory X is an old uh, theory that uh, was applied to management. And it, I mean, there's no formality to it. But the idea is you have to tell people what to do. You have to monitor them carefully. They'll steal from you if you let them. And uh, it, it's very much the way that, uh, that industry was built in the United States and around the world. Now we have come to realize that uh, you, you need a different philosophy. You need a different management philosophy and when it comes to safety it is absolutely imperative that you get people to talk to each other and to work in a team and you're not going to get that with the old theory x you do this and then don't make any mistakes uh, philosophy uh, as i say it started in aviation and aviation didn't uh, learn these lessons because we're smarter it's just that we were under the gun there was a meeting in Washington, D.C. in the late 80s that uh, was very self-congratulatory. We had people from all over the industry, the airline industry, and we had made such progress in safety. But one of our mavens, the guy who uh, was kind of the father of human factors in aviation in the modern age, Dr. John Lauber, stood up and said, you know, I'm throwing away my script today because I heard three conversations on the way in that really upset me. He said, basically, it went like this. You know, we've made such progress in safety, but this is such a complex industry. We're going to drop a few all the time anyway. We're never going to get to zero. He says, if we don't learn to believe in zero and work toward it, we'll never get close because we'll always accept a certain drumbeat of accidents. At that time, we were probably possessed of about 20% of the number of flights we have today on a daily basis. And you can imagine a small number of accidents as a percentage back then extrapolated over all these years would be a steady drumbeat. We'd be dropping a couple of 747s full of people every week if we hadn't learned these lessons. In many ways, it is counterintuitive, this idea of getting away from Theory X, that the less supervision there is, the less micromanaging there is, the more safety is built into the system. Well, it goes hand in hand as well with the the reality that you've got to have some of the tools. I, I look at it this way. You've got to, you always have the philosophy. Under the philosophy comes the strategy and under the strategy come the tactics. The tactics are very important checklists, for instance, adherence to standard procedures, learning the lesson only once when something goes wrong, uh, doing what the National Transportation Safety Board does so well, which is discard blame and look for all the contributing factors to an accident or an incident for that matter. All these things are, are tactical, but they come under the philosophy of cooperation and teamwork. And the way I describe a team uh, and, and have for a long time it, for 
the medical field, uh, is that it, it basically a, a good team is a collegial interactive team. Collegial because everybody on the team respects everybody else, regardless of rank or time in the saddle. And interactive in that anybody can say anything to anybody else at any time without any concern about retaliation. That's the total opposite of the way we used to fly used to the captain was god and nobody spoke to the captain unless they were very very careful about what they said and the idea of turning around and saying captain i think you're turning in the wrong direction was anathema until the late 70s and early 80s how did the culture itself change because we know from so many management books that have been written that changing culture is the hardest thing to do Boy, is that the truth. That, that is such a true statement. Uh, first of all, I've always said, and I know it sounds like a joke, but it's really serious, that you, a culture change, which is what we were engaged in in the 80s, is never complete until there's nobody left who can remember how it used to be. That doesn't mean you wait for the old guys to die off. It <laughs> does mean, though, that when you can look back and say, you know, intellectually, I know how it used to be, but I can't feel it anymore. I, I can't I can't imagine a captain saying, when I want your advice, I'll ask for it, shut up, which is the way we used to do things. And so when, when you're looking at a cultural change, it's, it takes decades, and it did for us, too. It took probably 20 years before we got to the point where – Almost anybody flying commercially in the United States, Canada, and the UK, and uh, Australia, pretty much all over the world, or at least we're moving in that direction, uh, knows that the idea of a captain who is assumed to be uh, omnipotent and, uh, and omniscient is, is ridiculous and dangerous. And anybody who's going to turn to their co-pilot and say, don't talk to me unless, unless I tell you to, you don't want that person to be wearing four stripes. It took us 20 to 25 years to inculcate that to the point that it really was a complete cultural change. What was the relationship as that cultural change evolved between the management of these airlines and and the people flying the planes? Well, it's when you remove the uh, necessary element of uh, the unions and, uh, you know, always looking for more money. Of course, that's what a union is supposed to be doing. Uh, and you look at the professional level of discussion that went on between the managements and among the managements and the uh, pilot groups. Uh, you see an incredible amount of, of understanding and cooperation over time. When it started out, we started out with a course called uh, Cockpit Leadership Resource Management. The United Airlines was the first, and that was about 84. It took a lot of work to get the FAA to approve that uh, by letting trade off some other training. But uh, the, the response was very good among the co-pilots, but among the captains, there were some old diehards that basically uh, did not like it at all. And it was the company that said, no, this is the way you're going to be doing things in the future. And if you're not, you're not going to be a captain here. I mean, we had one guy at Braniff International who stormed out of one of those meetings, threw his flight bag against the wall and said, I don't care how much you threatened me. I am not going to hold hands with my co-pilot on final approach. Well, that wasn't what we were training. We were training to communicate. The idea being that if you've got two minds in the cockpit, back then we had three because we had a flight engineer who was also a fully qualified pilot, you want all that intellect to be focused on any problems that you have. Otherwise, you've got one person trying to be omnipotent, and that just didn't work. You mentioned something before with respect to incidents. How many things happen that we don't know about that are potentially dangerous, but because of the systems that are in place, both the human systems and the technological systems never come to fruition? 
Well, they don't get reported very often unless they uh, they had gotten they had matured enough as a problem to really be a threat or to declare an emergency. But these things happen all the time, where you end up with a, a crew member who decides as he's flying the airplane or she's flying the airplane to let's say turn to the right and and an instrument approach, and that's the wrong way. And with the ability of what the one of the other crew members to say, "Hey, wait, I think you are supposed to turn to the left here," and a smooth transition from what the guy was supposed to do or going to do to what he was supposed to do, you don't hear about that. Um, one of the best examples, I think, goes back about 20 years. Uh, 747 taking off one morning, San Francisco, fully loaded, headed for Hong Kong, full of gas, full of people, bags and everything. It was one of those days where when you rotate the airplane to, to start climbing off the runway, the cockpit immediately goes into the fog and it's pea soup fog. You can't see beyond it. Perfectly legal. But as they're climbing out, suddenly number four engine, that's the outboard on the right wing starts the compressor stall boom 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 this is kind of a backfire for a jet engine and because of the torque uh and the fact that it's way out there it's shaking the cockpit and the airplane so badly the guys up there can't even read the instruments and they've got two uh, they've got four pilots actually captain first officer and then they've got a relief captain and a relief first officer and they're all on the flight deck the person flying the airplane is the co-pilot and as he tries to struggle with this one of the crew members in the back wall there in the jump seat says no 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 you're aiming for, for the hill out there there's a big hill to just to the right of the departure runway uh san bruno hill i believe it is in san francisco and he can tell by looking at the depiction on the forward panel not out the window that they're in the wrong direction or headed straight for this hill and they're too low and he says pull up pull up pull up well, the guy pulls up but he pulls up too hard and almost stalls the airplane out they clear the towers on the hill by 300 feet with this fully loaded 747 and they get her all the way around fine they land safely and what would have happened about five years before before they had a program that said you come tell us if you've had a major problem or you've made a mistake we're not going to prosecute you so to speak we're going to try to work to make sure it doesn't happen again that would have never happened they would have all looked at each other and said you know omerta silence we're not going to tell anybody what happened we're going to come up with some other explanation of course we know we had a compressor stall but the rest of it the mountain almost hit that no we're not going to talk about it but in this case these guys to their great credit believed the company went to the chief pilot told him what happened and uh, they six months later found out that we'd been training every 747 crew wrong in the entire world because our simulators were not able to duplicate the kind of uh, bouncing around that happened when uh, that kind of compressor stall occurred in other words we changed the way the simulators worked to change the training to give the crews in the future the ability to understand that if they've got that sort of situation, they've got to concentrate on certain things, not on what this crew was trying to do, which was take care of everything. So I, that's that's the way we begin to learn by by lowering those barriers, by telling people that we're, we're serious. If you come tell us that you made a mistake. Uh, even if it's a pretty egregious one, as long as it wasn't something purposeful like flying under the bridge, um, we're not going to hurt you. We're going to use that to make sure nobody else ever does that again. What's changed in terms of, of the quality of pilots and the generational shift in pilots? Certainly in this 20-year period that, that these changes have taken place, almost a whole new generation of pilots have come along. Absolutely. They have, I think, probably two generations. When I look back at it, I still feel like I'm 35, but the mirror seems to lie to me. Uh, <laughs> so does the date on my license. Um, I think that uh, as, as 
the new generational group of pilots came in, first of all, it began to shift from the military. I'm Air Force, uh, Air Force and Navy pilots and Army to a certain extent, uh, pretty much populated the ranks of air, new airline pilots in the 70s and 80s, especially in the 70s when the number of guys and gals getting out of Vietnam was uh, was flooding the market. There, it was it was not unusual for an airline to have standing 6,000 to 8,000 pilot applications at any given time. And it's been only contemporarily in the last couple of years that we've had a true pilot shortage. But uh, as, as they came in and the training changed, it's shifted from trying to retrain the old guys to training the new guys to be uh, very much in accordance with this philosophy, the philosophy that we are working as a team. There is nothing that you can't say to each other. You want, We want to do it politely, but we also want to uh, make you understand, and this was really pivotal, Jeff, when, when we finished this training, we would turn essentially to the co-pilot and say, you are co-equally responsible for the lives and the safety of everybody on board this airplane and everybody on the ground over which you fly. You, even though you're not the one in command, you're still responsible. You can't sit there and not say something. And that was really a watershed. Uh, so I think by about the time we got into the late 90s, it was not a questionable thing. Today, uh, uh, this is the way all airline pilots uh, are trained, and there are very, very few instances that come up of a captain trying to say, again, going back to the old, when I want your advice, I'll ask for it position. You just wouldn't be flying as a captain if you did that today. I want to come to, to the other hat that you have in terms of the fiction you write and the degree to which our perception of flying, our perception of aviation is shaped by popular culture, by novels like yours, by miniseries and television. Talk a little bit about that. Well, it, it is a lot of fun to, to tell you the truth as a author, to know that uh, when I'm depicting what goes on in the cockpit in one of these uh, books, uh, I'm showing you what cooperation looks like, or non-cooperation in the case of one, one book I uh, put out, which was uh, called um, uh, Lockout, uh, one of the ones in the last five years. Um, in most cases, what you're seeing is what we want to have happen, and you're seeing how well it works when there's a major emergency. But uh, I, I get to write that in as I know it, and also to write in the negative stuff occasionally to give you an example of how bad it is when people are not communicating. So, you know, it's, if it was a matter of um, every time I put out a book, 90% uh, of the airline pilots read it, uh, <laughs> then I could talk to them with even greater alacrity. But uh, it's, it's, it's fun to do that. Of course, occasionally it, it becomes fun as an author, too, to be able to say to somebody, don't tick off a, a fiction writer. Or you'll see yourself on these pages. How has what you write about in terms of aviation and the people in it, how has that evolved over the years that you've been doing this? Well, I, I think uh, it's evolved in, uh, in many respects uh, to pay more attention to the plotting uh, because the background, I, I'm more comfortable writing the background of what goes on in an airplane uh, as it really is and, and keeping it from getting too technical because I don't want, you know, I don't want it to be, to be something that can only be read by an airline pilot or by a pilot. I want this to be fascinating and interesting and engaging for anybody. Uh, and so the plot becomes more important. I guess when I started out, my very first novel was called Final Approach. And that was in the uh, uh, 
uh, in the late 80s. Uh, and it had an awful lot of technology in it. I don't think I overdid it. I had a great editor, <laughs> but he had to discipline me a little bit and send some things back and say, this is great. Now we got to cut it down by five chapters. <laughs> and most of those five chapters were verbiage that we didn't need because it was too technical. Now you can you can pretty much sail through one of my books not knowing anything about flying, and it's not going to leave you behind. Uh, at least that's that's my hope, and that's what I try to do. So I think that evolution has been uh, has been subtle but uh, continuous over time. What's next in the world of aviation? We've talked about this culture shift that took place over the past twenty years or so, the increase in safety, the increase in the unpleasantness of the whole experience for for passengers. What's what's ahead as you look into that that crystal ball? Well, I think one of the things that we're going to continue to be kind of tied in knots over is the question of speed. Can we get an SST, a supersonic transport, out there, or two or three types? Uh, can that actually be reinvigorated as an idea? Of course, Concorde was the only successful one that's ever flown uh, in revenue service, and they flew for a long time before being uh, uh, mothballed. And, uh, the, and that was incredible technology for the time, using uh, practically vacuum tubes compared to today. Uh, now, if our technology can manage this and we can get back into the business of SSTs, we're going to transform international transportation, but domestic transportation is still going to be the same. There are a lot of people who want to go from one city to another, in the United States especially, in North America, uh, as well as overseas, and the traffic is going to continue to increase. There's a, uh, a slide I, I wish everybody could see. Not really a slide. It's kind of a video clip of the entirety of the world in a market map with uh, basically a whole bunch of little yellow dots, every one of them representing a commercial aircraft. No private flights, no military flights depicted. And it shows you a 24-hour run in uh, air traffic around the world as of about four or five years ago, right before uh, COVID. And it is amazing. You can see every major population center on the planet by all these little yellow dots coming in and out. And over the United States alone, we're now at 32,000 flights per day on which any of us could buy a ticket. Internationally, it's about 96,000 a day. And one of the things that's so amazing is that almost nothing ever goes wrong. I used to be on the air all the time at ABC as the aviation analyst talking about accidents because we could never go a year without a major We've now gone 12 years without a major North American accident, with the exception of the Asiana crash uh, in San Francisco about nine years ago, which was a foreign crew, even though it was a U.S. airliner. And should we worry about that? Do do the odds work against us when you look at 12 years accident-free or roughly accident-free? Should we be concerned what the future holds in that regard? Well, yes, because the price of safety like that, the price of almost 100% perfect performance and safety is eternal vigilance. Uh, this is like balancing a perfectly, uh, well, taking a ball bearing and balancing it on a perfectly spherical inverted bowl. If you keep at it, uh, you know, just moving that little ball around and, and uh, pushing it back toward, towards the top, you don't have a major problem. But if you let it accelerate too far down one side or another, it's going to play heck getting it back up there. That's pretty much aviation safety. This is why we can't make exceptions. Um, years ago, we got into a controversy in uh, one realm of the industry over how many parts should be at a particular station. So, for instance, you know, the Boeing 727 had three generators, one for each engine, and you the, there was the same model generator. But uh, you could... Uh, 
get uh, a sign-off from your maintenance control and with FAA approval to fly with only two generators at one time, put a what they called a uh, an orange sticker uh, on the uh, front of the cockpit to let everybody know that you had only two generators. And, and then if you... You end up in a situation where you've got a two-generator airplane that can take about three or four more legs, and you have another one fail, and you don't have a spare because you cut back on the spares to save money. Now you've got a problem, and it's a problem that will come down on the captain's shoulders on, gosh, can't we get you to take this on this one-time basis? Uh, we've gotten rid of most of that. First of all, the airlines themselves have understood that that kind of pressure is just verboten. And secondly, we, we have to understand that if we don't continue to look at things on the basis of safety and not economics, uh, we're going to start sliding back and we're going to start having crashes. So it's eternal vigilance in so many different realms, not only having enough parts, having enough trained people, but also – and, and the airlines have done a great job on this, knowing when the ground flights, if they can't do them safely. And talk about the role of technology in this. You know, we, we see it in, in automobiles and all this talk now about self-driving cars and then, then a similar conversation that's taking place about planes flying with only one pilot. Yeah, well, I got asked the other day uh, in my role at ABC, uh, what about the one pilot thing? And I said, well, first of all, let's make sure we have the spelling of absurd correct, because that's <laughs> a weird idea. I said, that, you know, I, I apologize. I don't have a strong opinion on this, but here, here's the reason why I say that. Uh, it's not because this is the way we've always done it, which, by the way, is the most dangerous phrase in aviation and in medicine and in so many industries. This is the way we've always done it. It's not because of that. It's because the fact is, that we have crew members up there with uh, these modern jetliners with incredibly sophisticated systems that can fly the airplane. If programmed properly, they can even make the approach and landing and, and pull the throttles back and put the, uh, the airplane safely on the ground. We know that, and we can tweak that up to where the pilots would never even have to touch anything. But where the pilots as human beings come in is when things go wrong. There's an old joke about, uh, you know, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. Uh, we're actually not here today because you're on the world's first pilotless airliner. But don't worry, nothing can go wrong, can go wrong, can go wrong. And, and that's that's been the, our concern for some time is that the folks who've got the dollars and cents and the checkbooks and are making the financial decisions would like to have 50 percent fewer pilots. But when things go wrong and they will. No matter how hard you try, they will go wrong electronically at some point in time. Or the weather uh, goes outside the parameters the computer can take. Something happens. You need people up there. And if you've got people, it's not just one carbon-based mine. You need two carbon-based mines working on the problem. There is a spectacular example of what teamwork can do and, and how important it is when things really go south. Uh, Qantas 32, and this is some years ago, a uh, Airbus A380, the biggest airliner in the world, took off from Singapore and number two engine, the inboard on the left side, blew up. And it didn't just blow up and become uncontained. It put a hole even in the wing spar that was big enough for a man to crawl through. The structure was imperiled. On the forward computer panel, 52 pages of error messages suddenly appeared. Fortunately, they had four people in the cockpit, which I would have called originally the crew from hell because you had a captain, a first officer, you had a check captain checking the captain, and you had a corporate check check captain checking the check captain who was checking the captain. 
So it was a perfect opportunity for them to really blow this and, and have the, the senior guy with the least actual hands-on experience but more supervisory say, no, I'm the big cheese, I'm in command, I'm taking over. They did exactly the opposite. They did exactly what we trained everybody to do. And Qantas was in the forefront of that. They said, you're the captain and we're here to help. Tell us what we need to do. And the captain uh, on the left seat was the one who started assigning different tasks. They spent three hours in the air limping around uh, before they put it on the ground. And if they had tried to put it on the ground earlier or much later, they would have lost the airplane. And that was a spectacular example. There's a book written about it, and, uh, and all of us in aviation safety know about it. But what it gets back to is, again, the, the level of cooperation and communication uh, is is now driving the industry uh, in terms of safety. And, and that is so important and so different than the way it used to be. And talk about the ways in which some of these lessons are, are being inculcated into other industries right now. Well, the one I've been most involved with is medicine. And that's uh, really kind of a strange leap because I'm not a doctor. As the joke goes, I don't play one on television. But uh, back in the late 80s, I put out a book called uh, Blind Trust about airline deregulation and safety, arguing that um, deregulation was having a negative impact. But the book was really about human factors and about these changes that we were making. I got a call from a doctor by the name of Eric Knox, uh, who was an OBGYN who was all excited. It was late one night, and he's in a hotel room in Boston. He says, I just read your book. you got to come talk to my people. He said, Doc, I, I don't know anything about medicine except as a consumer. He says, no, 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 you don't understand. Everything you guys have just been through that you're writing about in terms of human factors, human failure, uh, communication, teamwork, he said, these are things that we desperately need in medicine. We're 30 years behind you. And so one thing led to another. I ended up uh, uh, lecturing and, and working with uh, with medical safety. And it's the same thing. Even when I used to have doctors, I don't have this happen anymore, but when I used to have doctors, very skeptical, basically saying, they're there, you don't know anything about medicine, uh, we don't uh, have an airplane to fly, patients are much more complex. We're now to the point where almost everybody in medicine understands that we use the same component. And anything that affects the organizational ability of medicine to keep patients safe and to give them the best that medical science can advise, uh, it's right out of the same book uh, of human uh, failure, human uh, uh, experience uh, uh, that we had in aviation. In other words, we understand that a, a uh, attending physician in, for instance, a very complex uh, operation, uh, if his attitude or her attitude is, when I want your opinion, I'll ask for it, we're going to kill a lot of patients. And here's the dirty little secret. We're still killing 440,000 Americans every year from medical mistake. They could be prevented. Every one of those could be prevented. That comes from a paper in 2013, so we need to have that updated. But I don't have much confidence that it's gotten any better. And the reason that this is happening is because people have not fully adopted these principles of understanding human failure, understanding the need for communication, and understanding that the best way to handle the potential for making a mistake is to expect it. What has been the obstacle, as you've seen it, within the medical establishment to adopting some of these same principles? This is the way we've always done it. Get out of my face. (laughs) (laughs) 
I mean, I hate to say it, but because we have such brilliant people, I, I've never had such a privileged uh, situation as to have been among uh, the medical profession for these decades now. Uh, but by the same token, they are trained, even to this day, Jeff, they're trained to be uh, absolutely foursquare with the idea that they could be perfect 100% of the time. They come out of med school with that. They get browbeaten in, in, in residency. Uh, and then, of course, the, some people are smart enough to go beyond that and to understand that that training was not correct. And some medical schools have begun to change over, but most of them have not. So we're still turning out the same product, except that they now go into a situation where the younger surgeons in many cases and the, the nurses are not going to shut up. And the administration of the hospital, if they're doing what they should do, and basically saying, this is the way we're going to do it. We are going to run checklists. You are going to have a timeout before you start the procedure. You are going to make sure that, uh, that you try to anticipate everything that could go wrong, whether you're in the OR or the emergency department or any place in the uh, in in the spectrum of healthcare, um, just getting people to talk to each other uh, in in a team environment and getting that team environment established has been like pulling teeth. But we're getting there slowly. COVID has set us back two and a half years now. COVID has set us back because hospitals are not spending the money on the training. And so what was known principally as high reliability organizational training is pretty much fading. And we've got to go back and do it again. And I'm really, really concerned about this. In the airline industry, did things get worse or riskier as the transition was happening, as you had both sides really arguing for their position on the one side, this is the way we've always done it. On the other side, th this more future outlook you're talking about, I mean, arguably, that's where the medical profession could be headed. That's a brilliant question and one I have never encountered before. Uh, so I'm, I'm answering that ab initio. Um, I, in, in my view, just really quickly thinking about this, there was no great diminution in safety, but there were some incidents over time, uh, principally in the 80s, uh, in which uh, people in the right seat, let's say, were trying to tell people in the left seat uh, that something was wrong and it wasn't very well received. But uh, for the most part, I think aviation safety just be began to climb into the blue. In other words, they got better and better uh, over time because of, of the these recognitions and because we had trained co-pilots to speak up regardless. And we had also said, look, if the captain comes in here furious to the chief pilot and says, I want this SOB fired because he had the unmitigated temerity to talk to me on final approach, we're going to turn it around and say, Captain, we're suspending you because he didn't get the message. So bit by bit, I think we overcame that by just the force and pressure. There's a, quite a difference between aviation and the commercial aviation and, and for instance, the medical profession or the building trades or nuclear power generation. Uh, and in the, in the airline industry, you're working for one employer. So that employer can say, you will do it this way or you will go fly for somebody else, which is not easy to do because you lose all your seniority. The medical profession, you've got uh, people who are operating independently in many cases, and it's uh, kind of a cacophony, but the principles still apply. So anyway, I, I think the short answer to that is no, we didn't go south. We didn't have the the safety uh, for airline flying get worse while we were putting these things into effect, but there were confusing periods and there were some incidents. And finally, tell us what you're writing about these days. What are you thinking about? What's your next uh, novel? 
Well, I've got a novel on the shelf, but I'm also about to put out, and I'm going to self-publish this one uh, if I have to. Uh, this is a major book about a fellow in Saudi Arabia, not not one of the royal family, but a, a prince of a gentleman. Uh, I really, really like him, uh, who has built a worldwide organization that produces titanium dioxide, which is in anything really white, white paint, uh, even paper. It's, uh, it's a brilliant uh, substance in terms of the way it reflects light. And uh, it's also very good for blocking uh, uh, sunlight, UVB, UVB radiation. At any rate, uh, the, the reason that I got into this uh, was because I was fascinated by how well he had done in taking care of his people in a growing operation that eventually spanned the world. Uh, it was called Crystal Global. And by doing things that were simply the opposite of Theory X, and it saved his company numerous times when everybody else was cutting back. They were in a recession. The price of the product had gone way down. He wouldn't lay people off. He would keep not only the folks in the front office, but also as many people as possible in their jobs. And, and they would continue to stockpile the product so that when the market turned again, there was only one company in the world that had the ability to immediately service whatever anybody needed. And, and they, they really were spectacular in their success. So it's a story of this gentleman who's American educated, uh, University of Maine, and uh, had a, uh, uh, not electrical, I was about to say that, but a, uh, a chemical engineer and a PhD. And the opposite of what's going on in Saudi Arabia right now, because the book also has a lot to do with the fact that the Saudis want to modernize. They want to break out of being dependent on petrochemicals. And they've got a very short window of time in which they want to have a lot of industry come in that is not petrochemical, which is what this gentleman, Talal al-Sha'ir, did. But they're not following his example, and they're going to have to learn to do that. This is a pivotal moment for the kingdom, and it affects the United States very much, not just because of oil prices, but because of a lot of other tentacles that go back and forth between our two societies. So anyway, that one is going to be called The, uh, the Nine Lives of Crystal Global, and, uh, and I will have that uh, out probably in May. John Nance, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much, Jeff. And may I get in one little plug? Of course. Uh, if you want to look at my uh, uh, website, go to johnjnance.com forward slash free book because I'm, I'm giving away uh, an electronic copy of uh, the, on, the only other biography that I wrote, which was about a, a friend of mine, uh, 15 years my senior, now deceased, a billionaire uh, in Texas who pulled himself up from, by his bootstraps, Daryl Simmons. So anyway, johnjnance.com forward slash free book. And uh, I appreciate that. And Jeff, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to your listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you.